Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Chapter 4 of England and the Hundred Years' War by Charles William Chadwick Oman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. From the Black Death to the Peace of Bretigny, 1349-1360. It was mainly owing to the frightful calamity of the Black Death, which fell with equal severity on France and England, that the war languished for the seven years which followed the appearance of the plague. For the greater part of the time there was a truce between the two countries. The suspension of arms negotiated in June of 1348 was periodically renewed with an occasional short interval of hostilities. The armistice did not always prevent hostile encounters. While it was prevailing, King Philip, late in the year 1349, made a desperate attempt to recover Calais by treachery. He offered Almarigo da Pavia, a mercenary captain who held a position of trust in the garrison, a great sum, 20,000 gold crowns, to admit French troops within the castle by night. But the Italian met craft with craft and revealed the scheme to King Edward, who hastily crossed from Dover with 900 men and took personal charge of the affair. Part of the French were allowed to enter when the king and his men-at-arms fell upon them and after a sharp fight captured or slew the whole body, December 31, 1349. A few months after this, King Philip died, August 22, 1350. But the succession of his son John to the French crown made no change in international politics, for the new monarch would make no permanent peace with England and continued his father's policy. Before he had been a week on the throne, there was heavy fighting in the narrow seas. A great squadron of Biscayan ships passed up the channel, committing many depredations on English commerce. King Philip had interested the King of Castile in his cause and had induced him to send out his kinsman, Charles, Count of La Cerda, at the head of his fleet, whose aims were half warlike, half commercial, for after passing the straits it put into the Flemish ports and loaded itself with merchandise. As it steered homewards, King Edward put out from Sandwich with some ships which he had hastily collected and fell upon it. The English were outnumbered and their vessels were much smaller than those of the enemy. At first it seemed that they were likely to fare ill. Both the king's ship and that of his son Edward, Prince of Wales, were sunk by the enemies with whom they had grappled. But the crews clambered up from their sinking craft and carried the Spaniards by boarding. After much desperate fighting, the strangers made off, leaving twenty-four of their vessels in the hands of the English. This fight 
generally known by the name of Espagnol sur Mer, took place off Winchelsea on August 29, 1350. The period before the renewed outbreak of open war with France was not unimportant in constitutional history. Besides the unwise statute of laborers, to which we have already alluded, and the statute of provisors, which resulted from the long quarrel with the Pope, which had opened in 1344, several other important pieces of legislation belong to the years 1350 to 1355. Among them were the statute of the staple, which provided that wool, leather and fleeces, tin and lead, the most important English exports, should only be sold in certain towns, ten within the realm, four in Ireland, and two, Calais and Bruges, without it. The main object of this statute designating the staple towns was to facilitate the levying of the duties on wool, which could be more easily collected if the king's officers had to keep their eyes on a small number of places only. But it harmed the small trading towns for the benefit of the greater ones, and put a dangerous monopoly in the hands of the merchants of the staple, who were the only persons licensed to traffic in the designated places. Another important step was the passing of the Statute of Treasons, which defined more accurately than of old what offences fell under the head of treason, a necessary piece of work, for the judges of late had been trying to extend the meaning of the word so as to get more profit from confiscations for the king. The last of the series of truces which had followed the Black Death ran out on April 1, 1355. In the summer of that year the English once more invaded France, hoping to have the aid not only of their old friends, the Montfort party in Brittany, but also of Charles the Bad, King of Navarre, whose broad estates in Normandy were conveniently placed for the receiving of English suckers. But the great armament which Edward was to have taken to Normandy was beaten back by storms, and Charles of Navarre had to make peace with his cousin, King John, in order to avoid destruction. A second and smaller English army had been dispatched to Bordeaux under the Prince of Wales, who had now reached his twenty-sixth year and was entrusted with independent command. This force had better fortune than the king's host, and after landing and being joined by the forces of Gascony, executed a destructive raid into Languedoc. The black prince made his way past Toulouse, burning and harrying the countryside as far as Narbonne and Carcassonne, both of which places he plundered, till he almost reached the Mediterranean. This foray cut deeper into France than any English invasion, before or after. But it had no result but plunder, and served no political or strategical purpose. Meanwhile the king had reorganized his storm-shattered host and passed the seas to Calais in the late autumn. But as he was ravaging Picardy, news was brought him that the Scots had taken Berwick by surprise and entered Northumberland. Much angered by the news, Edward abandoned his enterprise and returned to his own realm to chastise the northern enemy. Though winter had come, he crossed the border and ravaged the marches and Lothian, as far as Edinburgh, with great cruelty. 
so systematically did he set fire to all places great and small that the scots remembered his invasion as the burnt candlemas candlemas day february second having fallen into the midst of his destructive march no open opposition in the field was offered him but his foraging parties were cut off and his retreat to berwick much harassed by the lowlanders in the summer of thirteen fifty six the black prince who had earned the confidence of his followers by his successful raid into Languedoc, resolved to repeat his incursion of the previous year, and started from Bordeaux with an army of some 3,500 men-at-arms and 4,000 or 5,000 infantry, of whom rather more than half were English, the rest of the force being composed of the feudal levies of Guienne. This time he did not strike at southern, but at central France, he passed through the Limousin, Auvergne, and Berry, plundering far and wide till he came to the Loire. Apparently it was his purpose to cooperate with a smaller army under his younger brother, John of Gaunt, which had started from England on June 1st to land in Brittany. But this secondary expedition completely miscarried, though it was joined by some discontented Norman barons and partisans of the King of Navarre. Edward's own march met with no check till he had marched along the Loire almost as far as Tours. Then he heard that King John, with all the levies of northern and central France, was coming against him and had crossed the river at Blois with the intention of getting between the invaders and their base at Bordeaux. The prince's army was not a fifth of the strength of that of the French and was clogged with a vast wagon train loaded with plunder. He did not, therefore, intend to fight, but made the best of his way homewards. The two hosts lost touch of each other for a space, but suddenly met again near Poitiers, where their lines of march crossed each other. Finding himself so close to the enemy that he could not get off without sacrificing all his booty, Edward halted and drew up his men on the hillside by the village of Maupertuis, with a hedge covering his front the river Miosson to his left, and a thick wood behind him. He expected to be instantly attacked, but King John wasted a day in reconnoitering the English position and in sending in proposals that his enemies should surrender on terms. These were, of course, declined. Next day the prince thought he might succeed in slipping off to the rear without a fight, and had moved his baggage and his vanguard across the Miosson, when the French were seen advancing in four lines to assault the position. The English hastily got back into line of battle, and the fighting soon began. King John, remembering the effect of the English arrows at Crecy on the French cavalry, had made the greater part of his men-at-arms dismount and march on foot in serried columns. Only his vanguard, chosen from the best knights in the army, were bidden to keep on their horses, and ride in rapidly on the English archery as a kind of forlorn hope. The rest came up on foot in three lines, each composed of 4,000 or 6,000 men, headed respectively by the Dauphin and the Duke of Orléans, and the king himself. The devoted squadrons in front were led by Clermont and Daudrem, the two marshals of France. The Black Prince's force was now about 6,000 strong. It was drawn up, as his father's host had been at Crecy, with two corps forming a front line and a third in reserve. 
the northern wing was headed by the earls of suffolk and salisbury the southern by the earls of warwick and oxford they had lined the hedge with their archers while the men-at-arms stood behind to support them in reserve was the prince himself and the best of his gascon vassals jean de grailly the capital de bouche when the two marshals charged up to the hedge with their mounted men almost the whole body was shot down by the bowmen before they could get to handstrokes but the dauphin's corps coming up just as the horsemen were disposed of succeeded in closing with the english and waged a fierce struggle all along the line the prince had to send forward some of his reserve before they could be beaten off the fugitives falling back in utter rout threw the line headed by the duke of orleans into disorder and instead of advancing it left the field in company with the routed van but king john himself with his last line came forward with great steadiness and his single corps was equal in numbers to the whole english army the black prince saw that a desperate effort must be made for the enemy were fresh while his own men were almost tired out instead therefore of waiting to be attacked he put his last reserve into action and bade the entire host charge downhill upon the french one more precaution was taken the capital de bouche was ordered to take three hundred men to describe a long circuit to the northward and to fall upon the flank and rear of the enemy when he should see the main battles fairly engaged this movement was destined to prove decisive the french king kept his men together and made head for a time against the wearied english whose archers had now used up all their arrows and were fighting hand to hand among the men-at-arms but when the captal's small corps suddenly charged in from the rear crying saint georges guienne the french thought themselves surrounded and broke and fled in panic fear the king alone obstinately stood his ground and was taken prisoner along with his youngest son prince philip poitiers was not such a bloody field as crecy though the marshal clermont and the duke of bourbon and many other lords perished but it was specially noted for the number of noble captives who fell into the hands of the english besides the king and his son fourteen counts and nineteen hundred knights had been obliged to yield themselves to mercy the prisoners indeed were so numerous that their captors preferred to dismiss many of them on parole when they had promised to ransom themselves rather than to take the responsibility of keeping guard over them nineteenth of september thirteen fifty six the capture of the king was destined to have the most important political consequences when her sovereign lay captive in london france was without a head and civil troubles broke out on every side the dauphin as regent was unable to keep up the royal authority and nearly perished himself in a seditious rising of the mob of paris who slew the marshals of normandy and champagne before his very face the mercenaries who had served king john being no longer paid their hire turned bandits and went plundering in great bands all over the countryside worst of all the oppressed peasantry driven wild by the misery of the times burst out into an anarchic revolt against all constituted authority and in many regions burnt every castle and manor and slew every man and woman of gentle blood on whom they could lay hands it was only by a desperate struggle 
that the noblesse finally succeeded in putting them down. This bloody revolt is generally called the Jacquerie, from Jacques Bonhomme, the usual nickname of the French peasant. While the land was suffering from all these woes, no opposition could be offered to the English, who ranged at their will through the land and gained possession of many towns and castles. In short, the years 1356, 57, and 58 were the most miserable that France had known since the old Viking invasions of the ninth century. Edward III might perhaps have made further conquests if he had not consented to make a truce of two years with his prisoner, King John, for he wished to give him an opportunity of coming to terms and making a definitive peace. John, who naturally detested the restraints of captivity, was eager to get free and would have subscribed to almost any conditions. When a treaty was offered him ceding to England, Normandy, Anjou, Maine, Poitou, and all the other lands which Henry II had held in France two hundred years before, he was quite ready to grant the exorbitant demand and set his seal to it. But his son, the Dauphin Charles, and the States-General very properly refused their assent, May 1359. It was not worth while, even in the desperate state to which France was reduced, to buy back an indifferent king at the cost of so many fair provinces. The English had gained no secure foothold save Calais in northern France, and it was preposterous to require the cession of regions where they had proved themselves unable to establish themselves. To put pressure on the regent, Edward III determined to launch a new invading army into France. His military reputation gathered around his standard many thousands of veteran mercenaries, and these, added to the strong English host which he brought over to Calais, composed an army double or treble the size of that which had fought at Crecy. It was estimated by the chroniclers at 100,000 strong, but this figure is, of course, a gross exaggeration. In October 1359, the king broke up from Calais and marched through Picardy and Champagne, wasting the land till he came to Reims. He laid siege to the town, intending, it is said, to have himself anointed in its cathedral, where the kings of France had been wont to celebrate their coronation for many centuries. But Reims held out, and Edward then made a sweep through northern Burgundy, and then turned westward toward Paris. He laid waste the suburbs of the capital, but did not sit down before it, the season and the weather being unfavorable. Next he announced his resolve to march into the fertile lands about the Loire, and there to rest his army, deferring the siege of Paris till the summer should have returned. Meanwhile the Dauphin had forbidden his followers to make any attempt to meet the English in the open, and had contented himself with holding the walled towns but the country was suffering so frightfully that he and his counsellors resolved to make one more attempt to obtain terms from King Edward. His envoys met the invader at Bretigny near Chartres, and there was signed the famous treaty which put an end to the first stage of the Hundred Years' War, May 8, 1360. The terms which Edward now granted were more lenient than those which he had demanded in the preceding year, but they were still very heavy. He consented to give up his claim to the French throne and to recognize John as its rightful occupant, but the compensation which he received 
was enormous. He was to obtain almost the whole of the ancient duchy of Aquitaine, including the parts which had been lost by John and Henry III, and it was to be granted to him as a free state, not as land owing feudal homage to the French crown. The English king was already in possession of Guienne and Gascony. He now added to his portion Poitou, Ony, Saint-Ange, Angoumois, the Limousin, Perigord, Quercy, and Rouergue, besides the feudal superiority over the counts of Foix and Armagnac. Nor was this all. In the north, Pantieu, the old heritage of Eleanor of Castile, was restored to him, and the tract round Calais was enlarged so as to include the whole of the small county of Guine. Moreover, King John was to pay for his personal ransom the enormous sum of three million gold crowns, of which six hundred thousand were to be given over at once, and the rest paid up by annual installments of four hundred thousand spread over six years. The Breton succession was to be settled by equitable arbitration. Probably the French were wise in accepting the treaty. They needed peace at any price in order to save the realm from the frightful anarchy in which it was plunged. On the other hand, it is certain that Edward would have done better to moderate his claims. He only obtained, by the vast territorial sessions which he exacted, some millions of disloyal and unwilling subjects who were certain to rebel at the first opportunity. He should have been contented with the ancient English holding in Guienne, where the towns and most of the nobles were well affected to the house of Plantagenet. His hold on southern France was really weakened, rather than strengthened, by the new additions. Thus the treaty bore within itself the seeds of future trouble, but for the moment it appeared to put a splendid and successful conclusion to the long war which had been raging since 1336. For the moment the general aspect of affairs seemed satisfactory, for the Scottish war had also been brought to a close. Edward Balliol, who had no son, had ceded his rights on the Scottish crown to the English monarch in 1356, and in the following year, Edward III acknowledged his prisoner, David II, as rightful king of Scotland, and set him free on condition of his paying a ransom of 100,000 marks, which payment was to be spread over ten years, October 1357. The long-disputed town of Berwick remained in the hands of the English, but no attempt was made to insist on the cession of the eastern lowlands, which had been made by Balliol in 1333. Altogether, this treaty was a far more statesmanlike achievement than that of Bretigny. On the other hand, Scotland obtained a much-needed repose after her long troubles, and was not again engaged in open war with England for nearly thirty years. Border affrays between the moss troopers of the two countries could not be wholly prevented, but led to no serious conflict. Edward, on the other hand, was freed from the danger of Scottish attacks on his rear during his subsequent wars with France. But the friendly feeling which had prevailed between the two nations in the 13th century before the invasions of Edward I could not be renewed after sixty years of almost continuous war. End of chapter 4
Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.